Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. That's not bad. I'll, I'll actually let you go with that one, uh, mainly because I'm in a hurry. Um, so I, this week, um, I, I was reading somewhere that, you know, it was one of those things that like, uh, does this make you feel old kind of things, and, and it did. Um, and it was like, one of them was like, next year will be the 20th anniversary of the release of the movie Titanic. 20 years next year that thing's been out. And now, if you know anything about me, you know that I absolutely hate that movie with a passion, all right, with an absolute passion. I mean, the Titanic is a three-hour soap opera with a half-hour special effects tacked on at the end. I mean, that's all it is, right? And it's awful. And the, and the, the thing about it is, see, I love, if you know me, I'm a history geek. I love History, once upon a time, remember when I used to watch the History Channel all the time before it was all about pawn shops and ice truckers or whatever, you know, back when they actually had history on the History Channel, right? Um, I'm old enough to remember they had music on MTV, too. And so, you know, and, and so I, I love history. And so the, the whole thing about the Titanic is fascinating, right? If you read about the Titanic, it's really fascinating. It's a, it's a great study, a great study, absolutely perverted by that horrible piece of trash movie. And it's a terrible, and look, I got dragged to see that when I was 25 years old by my girlfriend at the time. She goes, let's go see Titanic. And I'm like, like, uh, I don't like Leonardo DiCaprio, but the guy who directed it is the guy who directed The Terminator and Aliens and True Lies. So I'm like, okay, Lots of people can get shot and blown up, I guess. So that's cool. All right, that, I can handle that. And so we went. I go see Titanic, and I'm sitting there watching this thing going, I am never getting this time back. This is, this is just, this is, my life is just spilling away over three hours. I mean, you had, you had Leonardo DiCaprio, who even though it's the early 20th century, is somehow garbed in like Abercrombie and Fitch. And he's got, like, a Backstreet Boys haircut. And, you know, then you've got him chasing this girl who's a gold digger, essentially, right? Uh, she's a gold digger. She's engaged to a rich guy she doesn't love. She's a gold digger, right? And so, and then she cheats on him with Leonardo DiCaprio, knowing him less than, like, 24 hours, tramp. And so, anyway, and... And then, you know, so they go that, and then suddenly they're in love, and, you know, then the ship starts to go down, and they go down, and they get, they find, like, one piece of driftwood. That ship was, like, the size of a city. It's going to send up, like, it's going to send up an entire, like, you know, Home Depot up, you know? And so, and so, but there's, like, one piece of driftwood, and, you know, and then I remember watching that scene where, like, she's on the, the, that door, whatever she was floating on, and he's trying to get on and can't get on, and they give an aerial shot, and I remember thinking exactly this. There was room for two on that. Move your badonkadonk, Kate Winslet, and let him get up there, right? But what does she do? I mean, what, I mean, come on. What did he weigh back then, like a buck ten, right? And, and then on top of that, she's just like, you know, he's just hanging on. He's freezing to death. And then she's just like, I'll never forget. Dunks him. And then she just goes on with her life, right? He's an ice cube. And, you know, she's just going on with her life. And I, and I thought, this is a movie? This is terrible. This is, this is awful. Because I at least wanted to see something real about the Titanic. Because I've read a lot about the Titanic. And it's really interesting. And one of the lesser-known stories I was thinking about that this uh, week 
that came out of the Titanic was a guy named John Harper, a pastor by the name of John Harper. I throw his, his picture up there so you can see John, Johnny. Um, John Harper was a passenger on the Titanic, and um, he was actually leaving Europe to take the pulpit of Moody Church in America. Moody Church, very large, influential church in Chicago. And he and his family were on that ship. When it started to go down, he saw that it was going to sink, and he saw there weren't enough life rafts. He kind of led the way, and he went up and down the galleyway shouting for people to get on the lifeboats, yelling, women, children, and unsaved. Women, children, and the unsaved. Women, children, and non-Christians get on the lifeboats. Christians, Christian men stay behind. And he went down with the ship. And even when he went down with the ship, he found a piece, a small piece of driftwood. He stayed afloat for a while. When he'd see other people floating in the water, he would paddle over in that ice-cold water, and he would say, are you saved? And nearly all the six people he encountered said, no, I can't say that I am. He said, well, then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right now and be saved. And he started preaching to them why he's dying of hypothermia. Finally, a, a rescue ship comes. John Harper died. Five of the six people he talked to died. One survived. The story did not come to light till four years later where at a church somebody asked for testimonies and a guy stood up and said, I am John Harper's last convert. Now, I tell you that story because I was thinking about that this week as I was feeling old, that Titanic's almost 20 years old. And I was thinking, because we're putting so much emphasis in this church about reaching out to the unchurched and evangelism. And it, that, and I was studying what we're going to look at here in a minute in John 9. I'm like, why is it that there are only two people that are really consistently good at getting people who don't go to church into church? One are brand new Christians because they're so excited. When you get excited about something, you want to share it with everybody. Now, when I left that screening of Titanic at the Wheelersburg Cinema in 1997, I remember looking around thinking, one, I never want to do that again. Two, I, I, the box office probably wished it was selling tissues instead of popcorn because every woman there was like squirting like crazy. Yeah. And three, I, was, I remember just after that, like the week or two weeks after that, like I just encountered like primarily women, woman after woman after woman. Have you seen Titanic? You have to see Titanic. Have you seen Titanic? You have to see Titanic. They were so excited about it, right? This is what happens when you see something new and you want people to come in. So new Christians are like that too. Have you, you know, have you, have, do you go to church? Do you know Jesus? Do you know, and, and they're just great about that. And the other people are people like John Harper. People who are facing death know they're facing death, know, know others are facing death, and suddenly when death is at your door, then suddenly out of fear, you start reaching out to people. You reach out to your friends and your family who don't know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you please place your faith in Jesus? I want to be in heaven with you. Those are two kinds of people. Newbies and those with one foot in the grave. And in between, there's just like this. People just play church. They just play church. Why is that? Let's look at John 9. Gospel John chapter 9. And I'm going to run through the entire chapter. Only about 41 verses. And we're going to go pretty quick. So we'll try to keep up as we go. Here we go. 9-1. As he went along, he being Jesus. In the New Testament, if you ever see he, it's almost always Jesus, right? As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. 
His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this was a common assumption among Jews in the first century that if somebody had a handicap or something bad happened to you, it's because God was punishing you for something you had done. There is still kind of that thing in the church, whereas God rewards or God punishes based upon my actions. That's not necessarily true. And Jesus points this out. He says, Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's saying quit thinking about that cause and effect thing. Just understand that this, because he's blind, because I'm about to heal him, that God's going to get glory from it. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now you're thinking, that's weird. Uh, unless you think it's, it's a symbolic action and you need to think back to Genesis. What does God create Adam out of? Clay of the ground. And so what is Jesus doing? It's a, by putting that the clay on his eyes, he's recreating him. It's an act of recreation. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. Others said, No, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Well, where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. In other words, he broke the rules. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided and then they turned against the blind man. He said to the blind man, said, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes that were open. The man replied, he is a prophet. Now, a prophet, see, we often think prophet, we hear somebody who sees the future. That's not the way the Bible defines a prophet. The Bible defines a prophet as somebody who has been commissioned by God to speak for God. He may speak about the future, but he usually speaks about the present. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you says was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Well, we know he is our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind, but how he can see now, who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. If you put out of the synagogue, that was their church. If you put out of the church, You were basically disfellowshipped, which means you could do no business, you have no friends, your life is over. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God and tell the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know is I was blind, but now I see. Snap. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love smart-alecky responses to stupid questions. They're my favorite. Then they hurled insults at him and said, 
you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as far as this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Or who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him now. I hate that translation. Every place it says Lord in the New Testament, you, I am giving you permission, mark it off, and put king, because that's what the term really means. It's king. Jesus is king. I think Lord, I think some British guy rides horses or something. I don't know. It's just weird. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him, which means he bowed to him as you would bow to a king. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that, that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus asked, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus' harshest criticism in the New Testament are for religious people, not for sinners. In fact, it's odd that the sinners that you see in the New Testament prostitutes and, and people who have been, you know, thrown out, and people who have been considered traitors to, to Israel and so forth, they flock to Jesus. They can't wait to get to Jesus. They want to be around Jesus. And it's a very good question to ask, why don't they want to be around us? Right? It's a fair question, isn't it? They wanted to be around Jesus. Today, they don't seem to want to be around Christians. Yeah? Yeah. We have, as I said last week, just building on what I said last week, too often we don't reach out to people because we prejudge them. There are a lot of people we know that we don't invite to church because we think they're such a hot mess that what would they want to have to do with church? And so many of them don't want to come to church because they don't want to be around Christians. They don't like Christians. Christians strike them as judgmental, hypocritical, nasty, narrow. And unfortunately, a lot of times they're right. They're right. But the thing you've got to keep in mind and what you have to try to get them to see is this. People come to church. The reason we want people to come to church is not to become a Christian, but to become like Christ. We want them to meet Christ, not other Christians. That's the primary purpose to get them in church is to meet Jesus Christ. That's the point. So when people tell me, and they tell me all the time, because my primary kind of place where I evangelize is in a gym that has no air conditioning with a bunch of guys who drop more F-bombs than we drop bombs on northern Vietnam. 
and, and it's, I, I have this kind of sinful pleasure when they find out that they fear, find out that I'm a pastor and they've been cussing like a sailor right in front of me and they get this look on their face. That's priceless. That's fantastic. And so, I, I, you know, you start to talk to these guys and they're like, oh, man, this church is just full of hypocrites. I say, yep, absolutely, I'm one of them. I say, what? I said, dude, I don't have my stuff together. You know, part of being a Christian is, is admitting you don't have your stuff together. And you got a long, lots of work to get your stuff together. Well, such and such there doesn't like me. So what? You're not coming to hang out with them. I don't care about them. I care about you coming to hear about Jesus Christ. I don't care about you hearing about that. I care less. Well, but I've done this. Yeah, I've done this. You want to get into a spitting match about who is the bigger sinner? I had a 10-year run where, baby, I was hot. I had a heck of a batting average. I almost went through Leviticus on Friday and Saturday just marking off the sins. Done that, done that. So what? When you look at this story of, you know, Jesus and the blind man in John 9, you see these religious people who are so absolutely, absolutely stuck on the rules that not once they say, isn't it great that a blind man now sees? No, no, you got to follow the rules. you got to follow the rules. You can't heal a person from blindness on the day we're not supposed to be doing anything. Religious people often are the blindest people you will find because they're so hooked up on the rules. That to become a Christian, to even walk into a church, you got to have all your stuff together. You have, to be, you have to be clean. You have to be sober. You have to have a good job. You have to dress a certain way. You better not have a tattoo. You better not have piercings. You've got to look the part. You better act the part before you even walk in the door. And that's jacked up. I said it last week. Let me say it again. A church is an ER for sinners, not a country club for saints. I don't care about the rules. I've had people tell me, I can't go to your church. Man, I'll be hung over if I come Sunday morning. I said, that's all right. I'll, I'll bring you, man. It's, it, orange juice, multivitamin. All you need is some electrolytes and a multivitamin. It's the best cure for a hangover. I'll bring it. Whatever. We've got to get over the attitude, and we need to understand that what we want are all people to be saved because God wants all people to be saved. So we need to want all people to be saved. And that means we need to get over stuff. We need to forgive people. We need to get past our, you know, whatever vendettas, whatever bitterness, whatever we have, whatever hang-ups we have. If we do our job right and we hit our goal, we have a goal at this church of reaching out to 100 new families who don't have a church home and baptize 100 new people this year. If we hit that goal, there are going to be a lot of people come into this church that you don't like. 
There are going to be a lot of people I don't like. So be it. You know? So be it. It's not about you. And if you're too comfortable, Dad and Rick and I aren't doing our jobs, quite frankly. Because this is easy stuff. And if we get those people in, you need to understand something else. Let's say that you get like, there's, there's a couple guys that I, I, they don't know it, but they got a target on their back, and I'm, I'm going after them. And, and so if I get them in here, right, and, and, and we get them baptized and all the other kind of stuff, a lot of you, unfortunately, are going to go, okay, you know, if he gets up and you know, gives his testimony, we're going to start playing some testimonies later on in the year and stuff like that. People give their testimony, and they're like, well, you know, I really struggle with, you know, with I party a lot, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of you, okay, now, boy, now, now, now that you're a Christian, don't, don't go back with your old friends. Don't go back to the bars. Don't go back there with, with your old friends. That's what we used to say all the time. You're too weak. Don't go out there. That was stupid. You know Why? Because a new convert is the, is the most excited person. He is the one who realizes, who really realizes he was blind, now he sees, and now he wants to do something about it. He is the one who's truly worshiping Jesus. He is the one who go after his friends. Now, I understand it's different if it's, a, it's like an addict. But if it's just your run in the mill, I like to party, they're like, okay, but now you've got you to hide over here with us, all right? Get that classic rock and country off your radio. You've got to listen to Caleb now. No more R-rated movies except The Passion. That's fine. And stay away from your old friends. No, we don't do that. What we're going to do is go get them. Because I would rather, I understand the fear factor that goes with like when you're on your deathbed and you're reaching out to everybody, I want, I want you to be with me in heaven, I want you to be, I understand that, but I don't want that, I understand, and I, I listened to the story of John Harper, what he did on the Titanic, I'm like that's amazing, that's great, that's fantastic, that's brave, that's wonderful, but that's not what I want for you guys, it's not what dad wants for you guys, it's not what Rick wants for you guys, it's not what Andrew and Ralph want for you guys, what we want you guys to do is we want you to be every day just like you were when you first came to Christ. And be reaching out to people all the time. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? When you first realized you were blind and now you see. Now you get it. Now you know what life is about. Do you remember that excitement? You need to get it back. And maybe that means you just need to know. and You need to remember where you were. You see, we have this tendency to kind of get away, once we get away from our conversion, we get this religious mindset, just like the Pharisees. We begin to think God owes us. I mean, after all, you could be sleeping in. You could be sleeping in. There's not a lot of good stuff on TV in Sunday mornings, but you got something on your DVR, right? Sit around in your jammies, have some bacon, drink lots of coffee. That's what I want to be doing right now. I get it. But then you come to church, you think, okay, so I did that, I came to church, God owes me. God don't owe you nothing, man. You're saying that while you're breathing his air. You need to sit back and remember what he saved you from. And I'm not preaching to you, look, I get the same mindset. The biggest struggle I had, some of you remember, that three, oh, now, gosh, four years ago, four years ago, 
My life was rocked. I had, you know, I came to Christ in 1997, barely 25 years old, after I was diagnosed with cancer. And if you know anything about cancer, you have to go for regular checkups after you're through it. And I, I went, I had the surgery, I was fine. But then I went from annuals to five-year checkups. And so then 2012, I go in for my checkup. And I, had, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. The way they check you for that is not pleasant. The people who check you for that know more about you than you know about yourself. And I went through that. Checkup was fine. But while I was in the hospital recovering because they put me under, got a staph infection, resistant to antibiotics. So I'd had surgery. So I had surgery. They screwed up the first surgery. Had to go through wound care, six months of wound care. Had an open wound in my back about that big. And about deep enough that you could put about most of your finger into it. And every week what I had to do is I had to go up here and they would have to cauterize, chemically cauterize the wound. Now, that means they burn it. They burn an open wound. I am allergic to pain medication. I cannot take anything stronger than an ibuprofen or I go all Linda Blair from The Exorcist and just start spewing everywhere, right? They tried it on me once. I think I threw up pizza from 1996. I mean, I threw up so much. And, and so I had to just bite a towel while this guy took this thing and burned an open wound. I had to do that every week. And every week... I was incredibly sore for about two and a half days and lying on my stomach for more than a year. And you know what I was thinking. God, come on. I'm on your team, man. I've been doing the work. I ain't been slacking. I, mean, I, I was doing inner city ministry one time. I mean, I'm, I'm reaching out to the homeless. I'm reaching out to drug addicts. I'm reaching out to prostitutes. I'm trying to get them into rehab. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm doing all this stuff. What's with this? What are you putting a hole in my back for? And what I was basically saying is, I, earn, I deserve better. I've earned this. And what came crashing down on me was God telling me, only thing you earn, kiddo, is hell. And only through the cross do you not go there. And so quit belly aching, because you've already gotten more than you would ever be able to earn in a million perfect lifetimes. You could not, never earn it. Ever. But that religious mindset, man, that kicks in. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. No, you're not. I don't care how jacked up they are. I don't care. And the only way you get to a mindset where you really will be able to reach those people, where sinners will want to be around you like they want to be around Jesus, if they understand, if they pick up that you really care about them, that you're not looking down on them, that you want them to come and meet Jesus Christ. You don't want to just get them in church. You want them to meet Jesus Christ and for Jesus to become their Savior and King. That's what you want.
You need to understand every single thing you do. Every single sin you commit is an act of treason against God. And that one sin alone is enough to send you to hell. One. Just one. So we are no better. And we've all sinned. Everybody here has sinned. Everybody sins here daily. Especially if you drive through New Boston. (laughs) I have, not out loud, but in my mind, I have said some really shameful things to old ladies going 20 miles an hour in the left lane with their blinker on for five miles. And can we just, just real quick, this is an aside. The right lane is the slow lane. The left lane is Matthew's lane, okay? <laughs> Got that? Good. We're clear. If you really see, if people understand you really care about them, if they can see that you really care about them, I think that's what attracted people to Jesus. I think that's why prostitutes and, 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 and tax collectors who are considered traitors and all these people just flock to Jesus because they just sense, they could just tell, this guy cares. This guy's not judging me. This guy's not looking down his nose at me. This guy actually cares about me. And if you can get that same kind of attitude, This place could be absolutely packed, overflowing with people who do not go to church right now if you can get there. And I understand it's tough to get there. I'd wrestle with it. I got got an enemy's list, man. There are a lot of people. If God would give me the permission, I would just, you know. I get it. But I'm working on it, praying through it, trying to get through it, to get behind me. Get all that bitterness and anger behind you. When you let people, when you hold on to bitterness and anger, you're giving power to that person. That person, you're giving power over you to that person or those people. And just let go. You just got to let it go. Do you really see, do you understand that? Jesus Christ going to the cross was your punishment. Except he only had to undergo it for six hours. You would have to undergo that for eternity. And he did that in your place. And you need to preach that to yourself every single morning to keep you going. Because I know how hard it is. I'm getting older. I hate it. Had a birthday yesterday. I appreciate the birthday wishes. But I'm not happy about getting older. It sucks. Stuff aches that I don't even use. Why? And, you know, my biggest sin that I struggle with as I get older is I just want to be left alone. Yeah? You know, I, some days my idea of heaven is my TV, my couch... And just leave me alone. Binged watched yesterday for my birthday. My wife's like, what do you want to do? Binge watch action movies and eat pizza. Because that's what I want to do every day. Is there a game on? Ultimate fighting on? 80s action movie? Either of those three are fine. That's all I want to do, and I struggle with that. Because I got work to do. We've all got work to do. And we've got to get to work or otherwise 
It's not good. Let me tell you a story. It's another story I read when I discovered that story about John Harper. Uh, I don't know if, how many of you have ever been to New England. I used to travel there about one, when I worked for ADF. I spent eight years traveling all over, and New England was part of my territory. I loved going to New England, except in the winter. You don't know what cold is until um, you're, you're in Boston in January. But I used to love to go to New England. I'd go, and when I'd have time, I'd go to the historic sites. You know, I've been to Salem, where Salem witch trials were. You know, go out to the historic lighthouse outside of Portland, Maine. Go to, you know, all that kind of stuff. And what I read was that at one time in New England, especially in the late 18th and 19th centuries, there were a couple harbors there that were known for shipwrecks. Ships just one after another wrecking people, drowning. And so guys who, had reti- who were retired sailors or whatever, you know, they, they all... They, founded this club. You know, guys like to put their, put their necks out there. That's just the way God wired us. And so, you know, what they did was they, they put together this club, and they put together this pretty much this ramshackle kind of place, and they would look out for ships. And if they saw a ship in trouble, they'd jump in their boats, and they'd go out there, and they'd rescue as many people as they can, and they'd take them back to shore, and they called it salvation stations. They would take them into these salvation stations and bring them into this little hut, you know, and feed them and try to get them warm and tend to their wounds and all that kind of stuff. And so after a while, it got, it got so big that so many people in this club who were taking turns, they were like, you know what? It, these, these men, these sailors, are they're brave, you know, because in the 18th, 19th century, if you were like a sailor's wife, when he took off, you didn't know if you'd ever see him again because it was a dangerous business. Ships disappeared all the time. And so they thought, you know, these guys are brave. They deserve something better than just some shack. And so they built it up really nice. And it was turning out this really nice building. Then they're going out in the ocean. They're pulling people out. Their skin's black. They got festering wounds. They've picked up diseases while they were, you know, overseas. And so some people in the club started to complain. It's like, this club's so nice. We really can't bring those people in here. And they said, all right, well, this will be the clubhouse, and we'll set up the salvation station, the shack down the road. And so they set up another shack. And after about five or ten years, they're like, oh, it needs to be nicer. So it turns out to another club. And after a while, they vote that, no, we can't bring those people in here. And so it becomes another club. And then they start, they put up a shack down there. And, it said, and so the next thing you know, after a hundred years, you've got this row of clubs, no more salvation stations, but people still drowning. Do you hear what I'm saying? You know how many empty parking lots and churches there are in downtown Portsmouth right now? You know why? And Callie, you and the bank can come on up. When we come here, we don't come here to be Christians. We come here to be like Christ, and I don't mean that. I'm, what I mean by that is Christianity has become taken on a bad name, a bad rep, because we haven't been Christ-like. And so what I'm charging all of you to do is to reach out to the unchurched, not so they can become churched, but so that they can meet Jesus Christ. We don't need more Christians. We need more Christ-like servants.
We're on a mission. We have a fight. And if you don't want to go, if you're just fighting against that, that's just not something you want to do. You need to remember. Do you remember when you were blind and then you saw? If for some reason, uh, I, for example, I remember flying from Washington, D.C. when I worked there to Columbus, Ohio in, in uh, late 1996. Plane came down, snowstorm, it was fine, but we skidded off the runway. That'll exercise your sphincter muscle, let me tell you. Um, if that plane had crashed in 1996, I would have gone to hell. But God saved me in 1997. You never know when somebody's going to check out and have to face judgment. And if you really love them, you're going to start reaching out as soon as you can. And it's just a simple invite. You want to come to church with me? And if you have to muster up the courage to do that, or you have to muster up the just will to remember that, then maybe today you just need to sit and think about the time you were blind and then you came to see. And I'm going to give you homework this week. What I want you to sit down and do this week is to write out your testimony. If somebody asked you how you became a Christian, why you're a Christian, could you give that like two, three minutes? You should. It's a powerful tool. It's just like the blind man. People can ask you questions. You may be intimidated. They're going to ask a question you don't know. And it's a perfectly good response. It's all I know is once I was blind and now I see. Christ from your church. God bless you. God goes with you. You're dismissed. If you're a first-time visitor, please go to the visitor station. If you're not a Christian, you want to become one, I'm going to be hanging around for a while. You come talk to me. God bless you.